Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Coming to you live from Los Angeles, California, welcome to Basketball Adjacent, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Smith. What's going on, y'all? It's Gerald Smith. Welcome to Basketball Adjacent, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network. Uh, My very, very first full episode, my very, very first guest, Mr. Josiah Johnson. Josiah, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. Thank you. I'm glad to uh, be that first one for you, bro. Be that first guest out here. (laughs) I appreciate you for coming on the show, man. Uh, A lot of people were asking me, like, what type of guests are you going to have on the show? And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to bring all my friends that are just doing a bunch of real cool shit uh, involved with basketball, but not necessarily playing basketball. Uh, And you were literally the first person that came to mind just because of uh, how often I see you on my Twitter feed, for one, just uh, staying culturally relevant, making sure you hit all of the the news as it comes out. So yeah. appreciate you for coming uh, on, man. Oh man, thank you for having me. Yeah, I try to I try to be as active as possible on Twitter. You know, don't ever try to limit myself or box myself in. So I do a little bit of everything: memes, jokes, some some satire, some stuff that'll make you think. Kind of just yeah. a little bit, a little bit of all. You know, use that UCLA education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, speaking of UCLA, let's get into just so the, the people know your background with basketball. Um, so what you you obviously played college basketball at UCLA. What was that like for you? I was there in 2005. So I was there with uh, Coach Lavin and Coach Howland. Uh, so kind of, you know, the, the changing of the guard with those two guys. But honestly, college is probably one of the, the greatest experiences of my life. You know, it's been, it's, we graduated, what, 15 years ago, damn, it's 2020, so I'm an old <laughs> man now. But, you know, looking back on those times, obviously made a lot of great friends, got to be at the, you know, the greatest school in the world, in my opinion. Got to, you know, get a great education, also play basketball. Was, got a lot of guys who went on to the pros, but a lot of guys were doing, you know, great stuff in the community as well. So, for me, I, don't, I wouldn't change it for the world. Obviously, my whole, my dad went to UCLA, and my brother went to UCLA, so it yeah. was kind of just, you know, it was boring in me that I was going to go there, but. Yeah, you know, yeah, looking yeah. Back on we're it, talking about, you know, being able to talking about to 15 a, years ago, graduation made you feel old. I graduated 2017, and I still feel yeah. old. My yeah, little sister literally it. just graduated uh, this weekend, virtually. Okay, why from UCLA? Yeah. Oh wow, man. I mean, I feel for, I feel for this generation, but I feel like also just seeing how they're taking it to the streets and how turned up they are. You know, they're gonna really, they're gonna really change the world and save the world. So I'm excited for them. You know, if you're sad, obviously, you know, you want to have your graduation. And college was a big one for me. So, but you know, it's the Rona is the Rona. It's a pandemic. So you just adjust and deal with it and life goes on. But yeah, yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. So what was, uh, what was kind of your transition like uh, from college, from, from high school to college in like the early 2000s? Cause you were a pretty big deal in high school going from, I think from what I saw online, like 24 points per game Yeah. and then going into college. What was that like for you? Honestly, it was a, it was a culture shock. Cause uh, you know, I played at a small school, Montclair prep that uh, is, since gone the way of the dodo, no longer with us. But, you know, did, did pretty good in high school. I think it was a USA Today honorable mention, All-America. My senior year, kind of a late bloomer, UCLA came, came the full late. But I remember just being, you know, it, it was kind of culture shock for me being around, you know, all these guys were going to be pros, guys that were bigger than me. I was a late bloomer and a little, little had a little baby fat coming into college. But, <laughs> you know, playing with guys like Matt Barnes, playing with guys like Earl Watson, Dan Gazdereach, as he's now known, and kind of that whole crew. It was a great experience. Jason Capono, the legend Pookie, uh, you know, that whole crew was great. But it was, it was a tough transition. But being five miles, ten miles away from home made it a lot easier because I could always go back and, you know, see my mom, see my dad when I needed to. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, it, it was tough. But, it, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a good time. 
So what was it like being involved in one of the biggest basketball legacies, not just in LA, but UCLA, you know, uh, obviously your dad being Marcus Johnson, a UCLA legend, an NBA legend, and then your brother uh, following in his footsteps at UCLA as well. What's that like being involved in that family, man? That got, that's gotta be the greatest thing ever. I mean, it's great. It's great from a family standpoint. We got a whole crew. I got younger brothers and sisters who are also, you know, played played college and just yeah. got a, you know a family full of athletes. And my dad is obviously the man. He was Player of the Year, first John Wooden Award winner. Got his jersey retired. But it was a lot of pressure too. But I think the good thing about you know my dad and my brother, they never really put a lot of pressure on me or maybe feel feel any type of way. It was just a lot of stuff from the outside, but it's hard, you know, going to UCLA, looking up, looking up at the Raptors, your dad's jerseys hanging up there. <laughs> and I was the last, you know, last person to wear 54 UCLA. So it, it was definitely tough. And obviously, you know, from a basketball standpoint, didn't necessarily live up to what I had hoped to, to accomplish. But I think, you know, I've gone on later in life and kind of got it together and got my stuff right. So, you know, I didn't perform necessarily as great as I wanted to at UCLA, but I feel like in life, I, you know, I'm putting up banners, so it's all good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there any like memory of your time at UCLA that kind of sticks out the most? You know, you kind of explained some of the <laughs> players that you that you played with, Matt Barnes, Earl Watson. I'm sure you guys have some some crazy stuff going on. I'm not going to ask you to get into the dirty details of that. But <laughs> just anything, I mean, I, anything fan friendly that that stood out to you the most? I think just being around. I think I played with something like 15 pros. Just being at UCLA, you know, the atmosphere being in yeah. poly, just just walking on campus, brewing walk in the springtime and the summertime, being able to hoop in the summer with all those pros that would come through, the KGs of the world, Paul yeah. Pierce, you know, magic at times, you know, the, you know, earlier early, early on in my basketball career towards the, obviously the tail end of Magic's career, but just being, being on campus around all those dudes, going to tournaments, you know, just competing, playing, beating, you know, beating squads. I think for us just, and then also I always said like the camaraderie, of just the locker room and 15, 18 guys in there all yep. cracking jokes at each other, you know, all going to war with each other during the day. And just, you know, you know, they're like your brothers, but you guys hate each other at points because you got to see each other all the time and go up against <laughs> each other. But, you know, when you go out into battle with each other, just knowing everybody has each other's back, man. And just that camaraderie and that brotherhood that was forged. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so I think something that I see people talk about on Twitter a lot, especially, you know, as we get into the, the early 2000s to the late 2000s and then the 2010s and now in the 2020s, how have you seen like college basketball change the most since you were playing, whether it be like, you know, the style of play, um, some of the, the freedoms or the, li or the liberties that players might have now or might not have now that you had then? Yeah, I think the main thing for us, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be funny and random, but like all the players, like I remember when my dad hooped in like the, the, the 70s and 80s, they used to wear like the super young shorts and yeah. young jersey. That's low you know, key comeback now. Yeah, but it's like aerodynamic, but it was so much more beneficial. I remember at UCLA, we used to practice in like, you know, 4X, 5X jerseys, 5X white tees. <laughs> and I look, I look back on that era, and we were just like super, super extra with it, oversized. You know, you had to wear like the 5X Pro Club with, with, with the jeans. It was just like a sloppy look that didn't really showcase our bodies as athletes and our physiques. But I like to see like the change these kids now, that, like everything now is like super young, shorts yeah. rolled up. Like their shorts can't be low enough. Yeah. When you look at the way they move on the court, that's saving a couple extra pounds. Yeah. Uh, so it just helps you move up and down faster. But I think the game has improved a lot. I'm curious to see now what's going to go on with, with, you know, guys being able to get money and all that type of stuff. So I remember that was always something I used to harp on. And I'm, I'm a big UCLA guy, but I always tell people about Reggie Bush and see what happened to Reggie at USC. Yeah. Yeah. When I was, you know, we were in school together, and Reggie was that dude, man. Reggie was selling out games. Reggie, you know, and, I, and you couldn't go anywhere in L.A. without, without seeing the five USC jerseys. 
So yeah. just seeing, you know, the value that the athletes had and kind of how we were treated and just like, all right, we'll just be billboards for, for Adidas who we were with at that point, you know, walking billboards where they might give you some backpacks some sweatsuits and all that type of stuff. But, yeah. you know, it was tough for a lot of guys. Look, my dad played in the league, so I'm, I'm not complaining. But for other guys, I know it was tough, you know, living off that scholarship check and just yeah. trying to make money, you know. And you got yeah. guys like, you know, you're literally playing with dudes who are about to be multimillionaires. Yeah. And they're, and they're asking to borrow money from you so they can go get some La Monica's pizza or something like that. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just like, like, you know, this is the kind of, this is the kind of world you're living. I think to me, it was like, it's sad. It's just like, especially with everything going on in the world now, it's super sad when you think about it. Cause I don't yeah. want to compare it to slavery, but it kind of feels you know, like that. <laughs> but know? it seems like that's the closest comparison though, right? It, it, and people, people won't really understand. Cause they're like, oh, they get taken care of and they get this and they get nah, that. But, they, they don't understand. They don't understand. Yeah, that's just they it. don't get it. Yeah. You know, but I'm saying, so I think, I think that, you know, when you look at these guys and, you know, guys that are going to be worth 20, like I think of like Alonzo Ball, probably most recently. Lonzo was literally selling out UCLA games, let him, you know, 30-win season, let him turn yeah. it. And people are coming to see Lonzo. They're not coming to see Coach right. Alford. They're not coming right. to see whoever, whatever, you know, the cheerleaders, whatever it may be. They're coming even to see that, Lonzo. I'm so glad that you brought that up because even that, like, now with athletes going to be able to kind of make money off their image and likeness, it's not just the superstars like Lonzo and, you know, everybody else across the world, yeah. you know, may be selling out their respective arena. But, like, you know, a guy like me, when I was at UCLA, you know, Lonzo would post a picture of us as a squad. We'd all get, like, 5,000 Instagram followers off of that. Uh, you know, as with, in the age of social media, a guy like me who had, like, 15,000 Instagram followers in college could have easily, like, you know, he's on the UCLA basketball team. I mean, nobody really knows who he is. But, you know, he's got 15,000 followers. He might be useful to a brand or something like that, you know. So not just the, the superstars. Obviously, they're going to – they're going to have a field day with it. But, you know, the the, the guys that are kind of riding the bench, I feel like it's going to be beneficial for them too. I mean, it's crazy because I didn't really think about that, but y'all must have had it so lit kind of in this current modern generation. So just to give you some comparison, like when I came up, we had like Facebook towards the end of my college career. Like Facebook was like 03-ish, I want to say, yeah. and like MySpace. And that's how we were getting, you know, like because we would go into cities and you'd have like 10, 15 Facebook requests, right? But it was still super janky at that point. It was like peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, college to college. Yeah. So like every every week you would see new colleges that got added to the list, but it wasn't like the Facebook that you see now. Yeah. So, so one week UCLA would get added, like another week was like SC and, and UCSD and USD or whatever. But so everywhere you went, you would have a bunch of friend requests coming in. And that's how, that's kind of the celebrity that we felt. But y'all coming in with, I know a lot of those like multi-million Instagram followers. And yeah. The little ball hype machine and all that. It's, it's crazy how tangible it is now. So you can really see what your value is. But yeah. like you were saying, somebody on the end of the bench that could, that could get a job and make bread. Like there's trainers out in LA that don't have any resume that don't, you know, are underqualified that are charging hundred bucks an hour to work out kids. Absolutely. Like, I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes. So having that validation of being a UCLA basketball player, like, look, you can charge a fair market value and put some bread in your pocket, which right. is like 100 to 150 an hour is a good rate. Like, right. let's just be real. For a college student, that's like, please, I'm, I'm cleaning up more than most people make as adults. Like, come on. Exactly, exactly. Like, just to have the opportunity to do it, man. Because, you know, obviously, when we were, when at least when I was playing, um, I was just a walk-on. But, you know, I was there every practice, every workout. I didn't have time to go do internships, uh, yeah. to really try to get into the career that I wanted to get into. But unfortunately, I was able to do it after I graduated with, with no problems. But, you know, being able to take advantage of some of the stuff that other students take advantage of, you know, ha having that work experience once they get out of college. Like, I feel like guys like myself who are sitting on the end of the bench, who are going to have that experience to be able to work with brands or, you know, market yeah. themselves. It's, it's going to be real beneficial for them in the long run, too, the ones that aren't going to be focused on playing basketball.
It's like, yeah, you, you know, you always got to think about, you know, when I was there, it was Coach Lavin. He used to tell us the fifth of your life plan. Like, you know, you may play basketball for five to ten years, whatever it may be, but what are you going to do after that point right. to, to get your life together? And thankfully, right. I, I wasn't good enough to, to have to worry about going pro and doing all that stuff. I kind of <laughs> had to figure it out early on. It's tough because I know a lot of guys that play overseas and you kind of get caught in that machine. Yeah. And you just keep until it runs dry. Then it's like, all right, you're now 33, 34, 35 years old trying to figure out, you know, what's the next thing you're going to do in your life. And then you realize you got to start at the bottom of the totem pole. And for, for a former Hooper, like, yo, that's devastating. Like, absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Go to go from being treated like with all this fanfare and love. Like, I'm sure you felt it too. Like, after UCLA ended for me, it was just like a, there was a brief period. Yeah, where it was, just like, it, was oh, a, it was a weird, weird little lull. It was like, yeah. you know, I, I started in the, in the business world. I went to an agency like right after college, maybe like two weeks after I graduated. Okay. I'd, I'd walk through the agency and there'd be a couple of guys be like, yo, you played on UCLA, you played on UCLA. But everybody else is kind of just like, you know, who's this kid? Uh, who's who's just starting here? Nobody knows who I am, and I'm trying to work my way up from the bottom like everybody else. It was it was weird because you know I'm so used to not saying that I was had any level of star power or anything like that because I didn't, but I was so used to going out and people like, oh, that's Gerald from UCLA, UCLA basketball. Yeah, for sure. Thing. Then I go into the working world, it's like it's, you know it's just another kid. What you got for me? Exactly. No, but you know when you got the UCLA basketball sweatsuit in the backpack, you you distinguish yourself. There's only 14, 15 people on campus right. that have that. So right. everybody, you know, everywhere you go, everybody knows what's cracking. Like, you right. know, West was very vast, but, you know, when you're on Bruin Walk right there by the uh, Wooden Center in Ackerman and all that, you know, everybody can see what's cracking. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what was, so talking about after college, what was your, what was kind of your transition um, from playing? What did you get into after you, after you finished? So it was tough for me. Honestly, after I finished, I kind of, I was a fifth year senior at that point, kind of like a Van Wilder type. Like I graduated, I want to say with like 220 units or something. Like, I was just, like, super smart, like, double. I'm just, you know, I came into college with probably, like, 40 units just off of APs. And, yeah. you know, like, passed my AP English. I got, like, a five on English, so I didn't have to take any English classes. Just, like, crazy stuff. But it made me so I look back, like, damn, I could have got, like, my, my law degree and, like, all that I've been, like, by the time I graduated, been ready to go. Yeah. But I think I really just got to experience college, get a bunch of different, take a bunch of different courses, learn a bunch of different stuff. But after, it was kind of a little bit, it was tough because it was, like, I knew I didn't want to go play I mean, I had opportunities to go play pro, kind of like smaller leagues, to not make no real bread, to be away from the family, mm-hmm. speaking a language that I have no idea or clue yep. that I don't want to learn. Maybe like one so or I, two Americans on your team? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was kind of at that point, you know, I just had to figure out, I had to get life together. So, after college ended, I kind of chilled for a couple of months, just kind of really enjoyed that spring quarter, even though I didn't really have to do much. And then uh, started working at uh, Fox Sports as a PA doing highlights. So they would do like Fox Sports had a bunch of regional networks at that point. Yeah. So I'd just be cutting like highlight tapes from everything from NASCAR to college basketball, football, and wow. anything you can imagine what based on whatever season it was. And then also started working over at NFL Network. So this was uh, like September, October 2005. Got on an NFL Network there too as a PA. Ended up going on there full time. Stayed there for on and off for like 10 years, but kind of rose up the ranks there. Started as a PA. By the time I left, I was a supervising producer of uh, produced a couple shows over there. So, but just kind of did that whole thing and kind of jumped into that world and stuff because it's like it's like the sports world. You're on the other side of it now. You get to see how the yeah. sausage is made and kind of how everything comes together. Yeah. But, you know, people people have no real appreciation of how difficult it is and how hard. You know, these are like 12, 18 hour days we got to put in. Yeah. You know, people in these little tiny trucks making the game come alive <laughs> and all this, the stuff that goes on screen and everything like that, like it all, you know, there's all, it's all manually done. There's a human being. Yeah. That's acting, you know, that, that's, that's, did that, did that kind of make you uh, appreciate like the whole production? Like at least for me, you know, warming up in, in college games and stuff like that, you see like all the cameras and all the guys yeah. following you around during warmups. You see 
uh, all the reporters doing sideline reports and all the the photographers and shit like that setting up everywhere. Does that yeah. make, kind of make you appreciate the whole production that is like a, a basketball game, a football game, a, a, a soccer match, shit like that? Yeah, for sure. I think from from our level, we we always know like when you're in the game and the red lights on the camera, that means that's the camera that's on you. Yeah, that's the camera. You know, that means they're rolling. So we used to always know look for the red lights. So if it was a huddle shot coming back out of timeouts, <laughs> or you know, like the game angle, like you can run to a certain spot when a guy's shooting, you know, make sure you <laughs> make sure you get on camera. But but seeing it after, because you know, a lot of people at home they just think that it's magically done. They're like. You know, this is all real time when it's going on. So everything you see going on on the screen, the graphics. I used to work in graphics where we'd have to build all those things that, that you see on the screen, all the text boxes and lower thirds and all that stuff is manually done by, like, you know, a, a BA they're called and two operators. So we're sitting there building all that stuff. And then as the game's going, we're flying all this stuff in to keep up with whatever's going on. So, oh. you know, you really appreciate it. And you can also really see as you watch games now, like you might watch an NFL game on a Sunday, you'll see the difference between the A crew and the D crew, you know what I mean? The A crew yeah. will have, you know, pretty much anything that, that comes to mind, they'll have it ready to go within five yeah. seconds in the truck, where the yeah. D crew is going to be a little bit, you know, they're going to be they're going to be solid, but they're not going to be hitting like that. Like, you know, yeah. it's kind of like bringing your Lakers out there, and then, you know, you got your, your sons or whoever, like, you know, still in the league, but, yeah. you know, they're not, they're not winning rings. For sure, for sure. So how did, after, after you know, going through the, the ranks of Fox Sports production and NFL Network and stuff like that, um, one of the things that I'm most excited to talk to you about, okay. one of my favorite cartoons to ever be made, produced, appreciate you. shot, uh, Legends of Chamberlain Heights. For those of you who don't know, this is one of the masterminds uh, behind that cartoon on Comedy Central. So where, where Legends of Chamberlain Heights, was that your first kind of big show or was there others before that? So legend, actually, so I was doing this stuff at uh, NFL Network and Fox Sports, and then at, on the side, along with a couple other buddies, I played at UCLA with Quinn Hawking and Ike Williams. We were running a website called Jersey Chaser. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like, you know, think about your bleacher reports, your bar stools, all that. But from an athlete's perspective, like we were way, way ahead of the game and kind of just our whole mentality and outlook on life. Like yeah. we were big on college athletes being paid and kind of just acknowledging that, that kind of the, the slave trade that was going on in the sports yeah. world, how black athletes were looked at. We're doing a bunch of comedy. Like, a lot of stuff you see on my Twitter now was stuff we were getting off, like, 10 years ago. Yeah. But that was just way ahead of its time. So we were doing a lot of YouTube content at that point. And uh, so I'd be working, like, I'd be working, like, 12, 18-hour shifts at NFL Network. And then on the side, we were doing this website with the guys. And, you know, we're putting up stories, breaking news on occasion. Because it's mm -hmm. like, you know, I remember we broke a Carmelo Anthony story one time about him wanting to play with the Bulls during free agency. Because literally, we were just on campus, you know, Somebody asked him, yo, you want to yeah. go, which, you know, and he was like, yeah, nigga, I'll, I'll fuck with Chicago. Yeah. It was that simple. But I remember, so we, I remember we dropped that story and we had dudes hating, like, from Chicago blogs, like, hey, what, the, what is this shit? What's Jersey Chaser? What the fuck do they know? Woo, woo, woo. Right, like, kind of in their, their territory type thing. But, like, how, who's, this, who's this website we never heard of? How, how could they possibly know shit? Then fast forward, like, a day or two later, Woj drops a story that Melo's interested in the Bulls, and everybody's like, oh, damn, okay, well, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, like, I, and I still break news to this day, like, when I feel like it, because I just got, you know, you got a vast network of friends that tell yeah. you stuff. Some yeah. of it's newsworthy. But yeah. uh, I don't focus on that stuff, but it's just crazy to know kind of how all that stuff was going. But we got our start doing, like, YouTube content off-kilter, funny videos like a lot of stuff you see nowadays with like voiceover videos or a lot of like memes and stuff we didn't even know what they were back then we just were like oh it'd be funny if we put dave Chappelle on here when uh you know jake uh who was it oh, what was his name uh oh my god eddie house when eddie house was uh getting getting slapped and shit by ray for austin we put uh, you know, <laughs> dave Chappelle on it or we put ron Artest, you know whatever just kind of but 
started putting funny stuff and I started getting a lot of dudes' attention. Then we actually ended up doing a Kobe and LeBron had puppet videos yeah. in 2009. So, oh, nine, we did a, we, we did like a raunchy, raunchy remix of it with the, the Kobe character who was voiced by Quinn at that point. Uh, Kobe uh, just being super raunchy, or excuse me, uh, Little Dez, the guy they were babysitting, yeah. being super raunchy with Kobe and LeBron, the LeBron puppets. So, that ended up going viral, did like over a million views online which was like huge back in those days. Like people weren't putting up the numbers like you see today back then. So that thing went viral. We, we heard that LeBron saw it and loved it, but we didn't, we ended up getting the attention of two guys that were working in animation. So they were working on a, one was an animator on the Simpsons and one, and then I think they were both working on a show called Life and Times of Tim that was on HBO mm-hmm. for a few seasons. So they ended up reaching out cold email, like, yo, we saw your thing, man. We love y'all. Like this thing is hilarious. We should meet up. Turns out these dudes live right in Westwood too. So we ended up going to meet at the W Oh, you wow. know, meet at the W over some onion rings. And they, were, they basically were working on a show idea that we weren't really rolling with. But they were like, yo, do you guys got any ideas? So I remember saying, like, yo, we just sit on the bench at UCLA and just kind of talk to you during games and have a good time. And then you see these dudes' eyes light up. They're just like, oh, you know, like, that's the show right there. So yeah. from that point, we you know, we created the show that went on to develop and change it to high school to make it more relatable. But yeah. it was crazy, like, looking back. Like, I'll never forget that day. Like, literally at the W, eating some janky onion rings. <laughs> you know, talking, and this was before the W got remodeled. This is back when it was kind of, you know, it, it was a cool spot, but it wasn't nothing yeah. special. But just, just to know these dudes live a mile away from us. We're sitting at a house in Westwood, kind of, you know, graduated college, trying to figure out our next move. Yeah. And now we do that, and a few years later, we got a show on the air. So yeah. it, was, it was a wild journey, man. I think that was going to be my next question was was kind of where the idea came from. And maybe that's why I could relate to it so much because I spent so much time sitting on the bench. Yeah. And some of those same conversations, you know, just wondering if you go get in the game, what you go do when you get in the game, what you do after the game, you know, going to parties, trying to be an overall legend in general. So maybe that's why I love the show so much. But uh, I mean, you know, you know, as a Hooper, like, especially if you're not playing a lot, like, you know, it's like there comes a point where like you've been sitting on the bench for over 90 minutes, two hours it's not going to benefit you at all to go into the game. Like your, right. your legs are, yeah. your legs are atrophied. Like you've been yeah. sitting, like yeah. and you're trying to go like a minute and do anything. It's yeah. just like, come on, all you're going to do is get embarrassed or get hurt. So yeah. My dad used to be like, my dad used to be like, you got to be ready. Uh, when that, when that minute and a half comes and they call you the game, I'm like, man, at that point, like my whole stretch is gone. I got to get up and down two times on the court just to warm up. By that time, the minute and 30 seconds is gone. So I don't even know. Why I'm out here, man. They're extending possessions. They're they're running the shot clock down. They're not. It's not like a cool. Like it's not you get like five or six times off the court. I got caught mad at me because I because I committed a foul in the mat last minute of the game. I'm like, dude, I'm trying to keep up with this man who's been running for 45 minutes already. Yeah. So it's you crazy. know those dudes be salty. They want to give you buckets. Right. They're like, right. Oh, I can at least pad my stats. I'm gonna take this L. I can at least right. pad them. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. Nah. That's crazy. So what was it kind of like seeing? your idea go from start to finish and kind of seeing the reception that, you know, the show had, like how much, like, I, I know at least me and, you know, a bunch of my teammates during my time, we used to like Isaac and uh, Isaac Hamilton, Tom Welsh, we used to watch it all the time, but what was it kind of like seeing the reception? Wow. People like embrace the show, how much people love the show. I mean, it's crazy because we're, we're in a vacuum. So you even, you even telling me that you and Isaac and Welsh were watching the joint. It makes me just, yeah. you know, it's like I, I would have been doing the same thing in college if some, some dudes I had heard went and played at UCLA and made a show. Yeah, as soon you know, as I would have been rocking with it. Yeah, Doug, Doug was a, I remember Isaac was watching the show one day and I was like, yo, what, what the fuck is that that you're watching? Like, this shit looks hilarious. Uh, some young dudes just playing basketball, sitting on the bench. 
And uh, Doug Erickson, for those of you who don't know, is the, the eyes and ears of UCLA basketball, was like, yo, that's actually made by uh, Josiah. And he used, to, he used to play here. And I was like, no shit. And so I just went and watched every episode. Next thing I know, me, Tom, and Isaac are sitting here watching every single episode, whether it's like in Westwood or on the road, man. Oh, yeah. bro, I appreciate okay. you. I think for us, it was, it was crazy because we started working on the show, I want to say, in like 2009. It was something that was like crazy. So we started in 2009, went through a bunch of different phases of development, went, went through a bunch of peaks and valleys, times we thought we were about to get it cracking, times where, you know, it would just be like dry for nine months, a year, whatever. But there was always just in the back of our mind, like, yo, this thing's going to be, you know, this thing's going to be successful when it goes. So we started in 2009, finally pitched the show in 2013. Comedy Central bought it in 2013. We spent the next couple of years developing it. Then it, it finally premiered in 2016. And that, I mean, that whole period kind of was just like a whirlwind. Because, you know, we went from, you know, not to say we were obscure, we were legends in our own mind. We were legends in yeah. West L.A. And, and obviously yeah. all over L.A., you know, for, <laughs> our, for, our, for our various exploits. But yeah. uh, <laughs> just to see it, you know, on a national scene, you know, going to like Comedy Central Upfronts in New York. And that's where they introduce all the new shows, the advertisers. But like Amy Schumer's there, Trevor Noah's there, kind of all yeah. these big hitters of Comedy Central. We're taking photos with like the head of Viacom and, you know, dapping up the president of the network and just... You know, it's, it was it was a surreal, wild experience, kind of just a crazy whirlwind. But honestly, a great time. We got a lot of, you know, we got two seasons, which a lot of people, a lot of people don't realize, especially on the TV side, like it's so difficult to get a show even made, even a pilot made. Yeah. And to get the pilot green, then to get a season, to get a second season. So yeah. to get two things, you know, two seasons, 20 episodes. For us, it was great. It's like, you know, we got two former UCLA Hoopers really putting on. And I think it's funny because, you know, we didn't play a lot in school and it was kind of like depressing and down. We yeah. were able to turn that into a positive by having a television yeah. show yeah. and kind of stunning on a lot of dudes we used to hoop with that, you know, <laughs> may have got more time than us or thought they were better. Like they see us pop up and just like, oh shit, here, here come these dudes. <laughs> it's like, oh, y'all was hooping, but we sold a show. Y'all yeah, don't know how much work goes into selling a show. So uh, I think that's a, that's a, another, I feel like I, I kind of understand it having worked in an agency and now in entertainment a little bit more, but what's kind of the process behind, you know, getting a show, like the development process behind it, developing it, getting it sold, you know, getting it pitched, stuff like that. Cause you said 2009, like I was back in, I had just graduated middle school in 2009. Yeah. You said you were, you know, the show was kind of in its inception and to see that yeah. I'm in college about to graduate watching it like 2009, 2016, that's what, seven, eight years. A yeah. lot of people don't really understand what goes into making a show like that. So imagine we started in 2009, so I was like probably 27 at that point. So I'm young still, like, oh, I'm about to, we're about to have a TV show, we're about to get it, yeah. we're about to be next Trey Parker and Matt Stone, about to, you know, be millionaires. Yeah. And then just, you know, telling everybody, and then the years kind of slowly start progressing, and people are yeah. just like, think think you're lying or think you're pump faking or whatever. Yeah. Y'all don't really got no show, whatever, whatever it may be. But, you know, we started in 2009 with our initial group. It ended up being four of the creators. And we brought on a super talented writer by the name of Michael Starberry, who's since been nominated for Emmy. He wrote uh, When They See Us with Ava DuVernay. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, you know, I did Inevitable Defeat of Mr. and Pete. But so he was – it's crazy for me to see kind of everybody's trajectory. So, yeah. you know, we started in 2009. He was hot at that point because he had just sold a pilot to Comedy Central called uh, Blackjack. It was basically like Blackjack Bauer. It was a spoof with Bing Rames and a bunch of other people in it. But uh, so he was he was kind of a big buzzy name at that point. But turns out he's from Milwaukee. He was like a big fan of my pops who played for the Bucks in the the uh, late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. So like just connected right away. His son's name is Josiah with a with an A, minus with an O. But like we just like we connected like right away. Like oh, this dude is this dude is the man. 
But so they brought him on. He, he wrote the pilot for us, kind of taught us about just kind of how to write and how to write for TV and how to operate in rooms and pitch meetings and kind of all types of shit. So we started with him. He came on like 2010. Then we basically had one version of the show, like, you know, some got it held up and then we went on and pitched. And our, our us crew went in there, me, Quinn, uh, Starberry, and our other two creators, Mike Clements and Brad Abelson. But I remember we were at the Comedy Central pitch, pitched the show, kind of showed them a little animatic, of the, which ended up being uh, the first episode. And, uh, you know, after the pitch meeting, me and Quinn are kind of, you know, in the hallway with him. He's like, yo, y'all know y'all just saw the show, right? <laughs> and we're just looking like, what, what? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> then we get the call, you know, a little bit later, everybody's going ham. But just seeing all the different steps, because, like, as you know, working on that side, like, selling the show is one side of it, but that's just the beginning. Yeah. Now you got to work on the pilot. You do, you do a pilot presentation, which is, like, 10 to 12 minutes long. If they're rocking with that, they'll order the full pilot, which is, like, 20-something minutes long. If they're rocking with that, they'll go test it, you know, in Las Vegas to see, you know, they'll test it with 14 people. That's, like, the market research. And if it passes that, then they'll decide if they want to green light the series. So each one dealing with each one of those steps of being, like, super confident because we just had the UCLA swag. Yeah, like I remember, me and Quinn would be in the room telling those dudes, like, "No, we're, you know, we're gonna go get it." Like, like, don't, like, whatever they, like, whatever they put in front of us, we both super had that competitive spirit still at that point. But it was like, whatever, whatever the challenges or the obstacle, we're gonna get over it. We're gonna get a show on television. So yeah. stop saying if and start saying when, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what's up. That's what's up. And was Comedy Central always kind of like the the dream destination, or was it kind of just, you know, that's kind of how it ended up happening? I mean, we pitched, uh, I want to say Adult Swim, Comedy Central, Microsoft, which was doing like content at that point, I, like when they were first doing like some Xbox stuff, mm -hmm. and then uh, FX. So I think at that point, we felt like Comedy Central was the best fit because uh, yeah. the studio that we came in with, Bento Box, already had a show there yeah. uh, called Brickleberry with Tosh. Yeah. So, so we felt like that was a crazy, whole nother avenue of crazy in itself. You know, Roger and Waco, who, who created that show, uh, we used to hang out. They used to be at the studio developing other shows, so we used to get to hang out with them. They yeah. actually came and did Voices on Legends. They got a show now, Paradise PD, oh on Netflix. Oh, you, know, that, so. you know what's crazy? So me and my girl were sitting, uh, we were sitting at home watching Netflix the other day, and me and my roommates in college used to watch Brickleberry all the time. And then now I see the Paradise PDs on Netflix, and it's just I was like, it looks like it's made by the same people. The characters look damn near the same, like same same kind of plot line, same shit. So it's it's good to hear that it's made by the same people. Those dudes, like for as sick as we are in like the black space in terms of like like you know towing the line of the content, the jokes yeah. that we get off. What they do on the Caucasian side is literally some of the most like obscene. <laughs> like like I'll just read their scripts for my own enjoyment, entertainment, because just the yeah. way they you know the way they come with it is like dog these dudes. Dudes are fucking nuts. Like, but if you yeah. see these two dudes, you would have no idea that, that you, know, they're, you know that they're, they're two like they're writing this crazy wild ass shit. But cool yeah. ass dudes, man, they're good dudes. That's crazy. That's crazy. So, kind of um, after after everything with Legends of Chamberlain Heights, what was kind of your your transition into kind of what you're doing now, as far as like digital content, uh, mainly stuff that lives on Twitter? Or is there any any other shows that you're kind of working on that you're able to talk about? I'm doing a bunch of different stuff. That's a, I think I kind of always joke around with people. Like people see the Twitter post persona and they think, and I have to kind of remind people like Twitter is just like my release. Like that's just yeah. keeps me fresh. It's kind of like my pickup games, yeah. if you will. Like, like, you know, I get bags off Twitter, but nowhere near the bags I get doing other stuff I do, yeah. but I kind of been able to use it. It's kind of crazy because employers that I work at will, will see the two different sides of my <laughs> personality. Like I'll be in professional business meetings, pitching the show <laughs> while simultaneously getting off of like a, a crazy ass tweet talking about whatever. 
You know what I mean? So I think it's a, uh, it's but like I said, like after being at UCLA, you were opening and exposed to so many things. And I always knew I wanted to be in the entertainment industry, even as a young kid. So for me, uh, after after Legends was done, it was kind of just. I felt like I'd, I'd done Legends, but part of me felt like, you know, the show wasn't everything that I wanted it to be. So I kind of had a burning desire in me just to focus on doing something better to improve the world. So I started working at a company called Attention, doing a lot of stuff, just social issue stuff, but a lot of stuff kind of, even stuff we're seeing now, like Black Lives Matter stuff or stuff yeah. on the environment, Big Pharma, whatever, just kind of super, just taking a backstage, but like doing like funny, humorous content, satirical content, but trying to have a message behind it. And I was, you know, fortunate to go over there and run their scripted department for a little while, do a bunch of like good, like good, just meaningful stuff that I think really benefited and made me just feel a lot better as a producer and a creative to know that I was doing something that was actually gonna be impactful. It was gonna be seen by 30, 40, 50 million people. Yeah. But you know, really like I just put a Juneteenth video up that I did with them a couple of years ago that's still topical and timely now with, with, with this whole shift towards Juneteenth. But it's like people don't even know what the holiday is. So yeah. here's the video that'll explain it for you guys. So. Did that, a lot of that, went back into the sports side, was producing a couple shows, did a show with Complex and Yahoo Sports uh, with Martellus Bennett called Mostly Football that we used to run during the football season. What was this, 2018, 2018, 2019 season? So, uh, you know, did that show. That was a, like Sports Center meets Saturday Night Live. So we were doing a bunch of sketches, a bunch of comedy humor stuff. So got to learn that whole digital side. And then all the while was just kind of, I learned a lot. I used to run the Legends uh, social media account. So I learned a lot just doing that about social and kind of, you know, how to operate, when to get jokes in, when to, when's the right time, what's the wording, yeah. what's the appropriate way to tap in. So learned a lot and honestly just didn't want to put that to waste. So decided just to, to push that towards my own following and just, you know, talk about things I like pop culture, NBA, obviously I'm heavy in NBA Twitter, but a yeah. little bit of politics here and there, but just kind of whatever's on my mind or anything I see, if yeah. a joke pops in my head or some way to, you know, keep people entertained, especially now with the, the pandemic and the Rona through these dark times, Everybody just try to find a way. Yeah, looking at their phone, waiting for, yeah. waiting for something to kind of keep them, keep them entertained. Um, so my, I mean, you kind of touched on it, but my thing, my next question was going to be like, kind of what your, your process is behind a lot of the stuff that you, not to harp too much on Twitter, but you know, I feel like I, that's mainly where I communicate with you, how I, how I see a lot of your stuff, uh, aside from, you know, now learning all the stuff that you've actually worked on behind the scenes, just, you know, kind of in the TV and production space. But um, what's like your process yeah. behind, you know, staying current, staying up to date, staying you know, real timely with a lot of the stuff that, that you post on Twitter. I know you said it's kind of a lot, a lot of free form, kind of just it comes as yeah. it comes type stuff. Like stream of consciousness, but mainly with me, it's just staying relevant. I have a big fear of becoming obsolete. I'm getting older. I understand the young fly <laughs> kids on TikTok that make like 70 videos a day. Like they're obviously going to make me obsolete at some point. I'm block, I'm blockbuster. I'm just trying to hold on, maybe shift to streaming, maybe try to take that Netflix deal and be smart like they should have. Yeah. But, uh, but just, you know, so I can, I can see kind of the end game for me. So with me, it's just staying relevant. But also I know there's tons of people that are in my age range that, you know, we had a lot of great movies, a lot of great TV shows, a lot of great moments that we experienced as kids. So bringing those back to the timeline, whether it's a yeah. Friday meme or, or taking stuff that is super dramatic and shouldn't be funny, like yeah. a Boys in the Hood and flipping that and making it, yeah. you know, making like it comical. References, the references that people of this generation might not necessarily think yeah. of when they see something going on today. But at the same time, you know, once they see it, you know, they laugh just because, you know, it's, yeah. they laugh, they feel how they're supposed to feel about it. Uh, because you kind of mesh the two so well. That makes it, that makes uh, it sense. But for me, it's just so, so I just try to stay as active as possible and stay relevant. Because I know the thing is, like, you know, there's, there's peaks and valleys in, in the writing and producing game. Sometimes you're hot, sometimes you're not. But the thing with me with creating, creating socially is that, 
you know, you're always able to go put something out. You, you can put a million view video out any any moment. Yeah. You know, based on something that happens. Yeah. And you look at somebody like Sarah Cooper. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she's done a lot of like the the Trump impersonations. And yeah. 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 You know, I'm, I've been I've been just tracking her following the past couple of months. It went from like a hundred thousand to one point four million, and you can see in real time just how successful you can be using this platform to get your voice out. Yeah. But like I'm I'm honestly convinced. Like if I wouldn't have done the social stuff, it would have closed so many doors for me because nobody would have got to see my personality, and I would have had to rely on my agents and manager. Yeah. To be able to try to sell me, as opposed to just being like, oh, well, just go look at his Twitter. Like just you know, you <laughs> want to know what's he like? Like you know, oh, <laughs> shit, go, go look, go at, look his- at his timeline. Look at his time, like any, any, any point of the week, you're going to see some crazy shit scroll through for five minutes and you're going to see kind of how all over the place he is. But what you're going to see is, it's like, you know, tweets with 20, 30,000 retweets and millions of views on them. And you just to see, like, how you can really connect and touch, you know, people. Like, that's just something that's great for me. Like, I feel like the thing I love about Twitter is you can have one follower, right? But if you put out the right piece of content, that thing will explode and it'll right. be, you know, next thing you know, you become the biggest thing on the internet. So it's a wild place, but it's fun for me just to, you know, be able to meet people. I've gotten to meet more big names. Like, I've, you know, I would never been able to meet Jordan Peele in my life, you know, just yeah. trying to go the conventional route. Wow. You actually but met him? Off of, I didn't meet him. I didn't meet, I didn't meet him. But uh, so I, I, made a, I made a funny get out video with like Antonio Brown. They ended up doing like millions of views. Yeah. He ended up following me off it. So I just DM'd him something like, I appreciate you. Know, I had a show on Comedy Central too. I appreciate you really laying the foundation but he hit me back and like you know now we're going back and forth to communicate and i'm just like i would have never had that type yeah. of opportunity just you know just trying to hit him up on twitter like yo dm me dog like yeah but you wow. do something that they appreciate and they're like gravitate like oh that's you know i've done like ice cube parodies he's quote tweeted him and reached out and stuff it's yeah. like so you know you know you know it's when you do things like that they rock with you like i remember i did like a big three meme with the boys in the hood did a mashup and Cuba ended up loving it. And I got, you know, you know, went and did some stuff with the big three after that. So yeah. I used it as like a calling card resume builder. But just tell people, I don't do it for money or whatever. I just honestly do it for my own soul entertainment. Yeah. But from that comes a lot of opportunities. That's kind of crazy how that works out, too. It's kind of like, you know, you focus your energy on the things that you really enjoy doing. And the universe kind of rewards you for that. It's kind of yeah. like we see how much effort you put into it. We see how much fun you're having with it. You Here, take this bag along with it, too, type thing. I mean, you be, it's, it's so crazy to me now to like the bags that people like try to throw at me for just doing stuff I would do anyway. Yeah. It's, really, it's hard. It's hard when you're working trying to figure out what's that thing that you're passionate yeah. about really like. Yeah, like, I know this is it because when I'm at a real work, I'll go dip off in the bathroom real quick, throw up a video, and then the literally streets. be in the middle of a meeting watching my video, get yeah. thousands and thousands of retweets, just cracking up to myself. But I knew kind of, but now seeing like, yo, there's a multi-million dollar, billion dollar industry tailored around social and digital content. It's like, all right, I think I picked the right lane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what kind of, uh, I mean, just like I mentioned earlier, uh, I know a lot of athletes who end up not playing professionally are kind of wondering what's next for them after they do stop playing. What kind of advice would you have for maybe young athletes right now um, that are interested in some of the stuff that they see on social, some of the stuff that they see in digital media that they see on TV, um, or just in like production around the world. Like what, how, how would you advise they get into those types of opportunities once they're done playing people that haven't had the chance to be kind of exposed to it as much as your traditional student? Yeah, I think, look, like, you know, especially like going somewhere like a UCLA, like tap into the alumni network, see what options and resources you have available there. I think more, more expansively, like just make content. Like we, you, I think a, pe- a lot of people are afraid to, to create because they, they don't want to get clowned or roasted for putting out a bad piece of video. Yeah. Like I'm 38, I'll still put out a, a shitty video every once in a while that'll bomb. And it's just like, that's just part of the game. But yeah. I think the thing a lot of people, you know, 
they they like I've been making videos since since the YouTube days. So in terms of like getting comments, I've seen every type of comment under the sun. I've, yeah. My mom's been called a whore. I've been told like you know we should oh, get man. cancer and die. I'm just saying, but these that's things wild like people on the internet too. That that's wow. But but they make you stronger though. It's kind of like the message boards and when you're playing college basketball, whatever it may be. Like don't you know a lot of people will see that and it'll really like wear on them and they'll get like you know they'll get emotionally defeated by some, some motherfucker that has 25 followers that's some loser yeah. that would never do anything with their life. Yeah. So I think that's a tough thing about creating, especially on Twitter. Like you take all your favorite content creators other than like maybe one or two people on there, but they'll put videos up that people aren't rocking with. You look at the comments, it'll just be like a barrage of negativity and hate and whatever. So half the battle just getting over that shit. Yeah. Like not worrying about it, making content that you like, you appreciate, but just learning. Like we started, we started just figuring shit out, learn how to edit. Learn how to do all these things and, and don't be afraid to put out some pieces of shit when you first start. Yeah. That, that's life. That's going to make you stronger. But yeah. as you're doing that, like, see what happens. Like, we were fortunate to come out with some hits, but we also had some misses, too. But we learned from every single one. All right, I'm not going to do this again. I'm going to change and do this this time or this will be funny if this happens or whatever. Yeah. So I think, you know, especially like I'm 38 now, so I'm kind of an OG, old school in the game. But for these young kids, and I see so many talented-ass kids with TikTok and whatever, yeah. it's like expand that out now. Start telling short stories. Start writing scripts. Start trying to make your own content. And like I said, yeah. a lot of it may suck at first, but just go out there and do it. And the more repetitions you get, like anything, the better you're going to get at it, the easier it's going to get. Like when I first started doing Twitter, I hated Twitter. Like like literally, it used to annoy <laughs> the fuck out of me just even thinking about it. But then as I started using it, like, okay, this is how I can come – this is how I can really come with it. If you notice, I'm not just on Twitter all day tweeting. Like I got – a lot of shit going on. But when I yeah. come to the block, it's with some heat. Yeah. I'm generally going to drop it real quick, you know, yeah. do some numbers and see you guys in a little bit yeah. as I get back to doing my regular square gigs. But I think it's just really kind of focusing. And there's such a huge market nowadays for social and digital content. Like yeah. this is like the new frontier. Like when we were coming up, it was movies and TV and that's still strong. And there's still a ton of bread to be made there. But everything now is shifting towards digital because it's so yeah. much easier to access. You can watch it whenever. There's so many different streaming and, and you know social platforms available to get your content out. And like I said, whether it be TikTok, IG, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, yeah. or you know, what I mean, Snapchat. Yeah. Like you can you can become a superstar off of one of these. You know, there's there's like I'm looking at these girls on TikTok with like 40, 50 million followers now that are getting hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar deals and getting flown yeah. out to all star weekend and yeah. you know, but I'm just saying like, you know, a year ago they didn't have anything, but they yeah. they get on these platforms, they use them consistently. And the thing main thing is just work, man. Like you're not gonna shortcut or cheat. I think a lot of people lie to themselves when they put out content. Like every piece of content we put out, we'll dissect and I'll look our what hit, what didn't, like what can I reuse later on down the road that might make another video good, what shouldn't I do? But just got to learn from all these situations, be your biggest critic. Like a lot of people can't do that. They can't take criticism either. They think everything they do is perfect. Like yeah. you gotta be, you know, you gotta be prepared. I've had enough people in my life tell me they didn't like some shit I did. Yeah. So, all right, so let me let me do some shit you do like. So yeah. I think the main thing is don't get discouraged, man, because it's it's a hard, especially in the entertainment side. Like I told you, we started Legends in two thousand nine. That shit didn't air till twenty sixteen. Yeah. You know, what I mean, that'll break a lot of people's spirits waiting that seven years. That'll really make you question everything and want to give up. Yeah. But don't give up. You know, just keep grinding. And and like I tell people. Like, if you quit, nobody's going to care anyway. Nobody's going to feel sorry for you. Everybody else has their own shit to worry about. So you think, like, the world's going to stop because you don't want to do something anymore. It's like, nah. no. Like, so nah. you might as well go be successful. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your, out of your day to, to chop it up with me uh, over here on the Basketball Jason podcast. For everybody that doesn't know, they can follow Josiah on all social media uh, platforms at, at KingJosiah54 on Instagram, on Twitter. Uh, go stream and follow for some of the funniest content that you ever will see 
on social media. Fuck with all the shows that he has coming out, all the shows he's working on. Um, follow me on Instagram, Twitter, all social media platforms at GeraldHTMS, J-E-R-R-O-L-D-H-T-I-M-S. Uh, this has been the Basketball Adjacent Podcast brought to you by Believe Podcast with Josiah Johnson. Thank you so much for coming on, man. I appreciate you for having me. I'm glad to be the first guest on what should be a legendary podcast. Yes, sir. Let's, let's, let's hope so, man. Let's hope so. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and tune in to the Basketball Adjacent Podcast on your favorite audio platform or always on Believe. That's B-L-E-A-V dot com. Interested in advertising on the Basketball Adjacent Podcast? Hit me up on any social platform at at Gerald H. Timms. That's at sign J-E-R-R-O-L-D-H-T-I-M-S. And stay tuned for updates on bi-weekly episodes and what to expect next. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.